This is Iron Sports. We're talking to Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Jeremy, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. It's my pleasure. Thanks. So, Jeremy, when, when I first heard about Oscar Charleston, I'm like, who? And I, it came when that Bill James, when Bill James ranked Oscar Charleston uh, the fourth best baseball player of all time. And I'm like, I don't never heard of him. And I'm sports. I have my own sports show. I'm this. How would I not know this? And then, of course, I read a little bit about him and had an understanding. But it's amazing in terms of, as I said, Bill James ranked him as the fourth best player behind uh, Ruth and Cobb and, and Mays. And uh, just a, just an amazing thing in terms of you chose to, to glorify Oscar's career. I had the exact same experience as you. I thought I was a big sports fan. Uh, I didn't have a radio show. So <laughs> I got a dinghy for that, Ira. But uh, no, I was reading James's uh, new historical baseball abstract, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of the fourth greatest player of all time. And it's, of course, something that you're a little bit skeptical of when you first read. And, and James knew that, and he goes on at some length in that book to defend his ranking. Um, but Oscar Charleston, the more you read about him and dig into him, the more it's very clear that James's uh, high regard for him was completely justified. I mean, he played from 1917 up until 1935 in the Black Leagues. And uh, it was just when you, and as James said, for seven years, he could be considered the MVP. And he played the same time as Ruth and as Cobb. And people in his peers regarded him as the best player in baseball, which is amazing. Yeah, he, he had a very long career. Uh, he was a, uh, it started as you say, in the teens with the Indianapolis ABCs, went on to play for the Harrisburg Giants and the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Harris, uh, Homestead Grays, a number of teams, and was clearly the consensus uh, greatest player uh, in black baseball in the 1920s, Late started probably in the late teens and throughout the 1920s, and then not a few people said he was the greatest all-around player they'd ever seen, period, including a number of, of white observers, uh, people like Honus Wagner said he was as good as anybody would ever seen, uh, Happy Chandler, the former commissioner of baseball, said that Charleston and Cobb are the two greatest he'd ever seen. Number of others. Yeah, he was a, he was a five-tool player. Uh, he could he could run, hit for hit, hit for power. Um, uh, had, a, had a good arm, uh, and was a great great defensive center fielder. So I I tell people think of a, a, a left-handed Mike Trout if you're if you're into the game today, and that's essentially kind of what Charleston was like. And I was wrong of being in the show. I said the, the fourth was Ruth, Honus Wagner, Willie Mays, Oscar Charleston, then Ty, right. then Ty Cobb. And he had movie star good right. He had, he was had had a, had a very amazing personality, uh, engaging. He had movie star looks. He was fashionably dressed before in, in a time when it, it was, and he was also a star in Cuba. He went down to Cuba with his wife, and they were like A-Rod mm-hmm. and, and, and J-Lo in terms of in Cuba, in terms of being both celebrities <laughs> down there. It's like, so the question is, how in the world does someone who is viewed like this, there's no recognition. Like, I heard of Josh Gibson. I heard of Satchel Paige. Why did, right. why did he go? Now, he's in the Hall of Fame. He got in the Hall of Fame in 1976. But why does yeah. he not have the recognition that, that even many of these black league pl- uh, players had? Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a mystery, and I, I can't claim to have solved it entirely. I think there are a number of converging reasons. Uh, first thing is just consider history is unjust. It is not so. It's not sort of a perfect sifter, you know. That only that we always remember the people who deserve to be remembered. And so, 
while, yes, we do Satchel Page as a name everybody knows, you know something about him, but Satchel Page was an unparalleled character, number one. And number two, he did play in, in the um, National League or Ameri- in the American League, right? So he played it after integration. Gibson, we remember somewhat because of the prodigious home runs and the legends that collected around that, but he was a later figure than Charleston. He was the next generation, and he was somebody who could have played um, it was thought after integration, of course, he died tragically and young. Um, and he also was connected with Paige. If you think about it, we know Paige, Gibson, cool Papa Bell is a name everybody knows. But how many Negro League stars of the previous generation does anybody know? And I think the answer is basically nobody. Only That's, that's really the story here is that we got <clears throat> a little bit of that last generation seeped into the collective sort of memory and consciousness of America. Uh, but the, the generations before... Nobody made it through. So in that sense, Charleston just sort of stands for everybody else. He also had the bad luck of not leaving any children behind, so there was no one to tend his flame. That's another reason. And then the last one I would say is his home city, Indianapolis, for whatever reason, just never claimed him. Uh, Even though he grew up in the same neighborhood as Oscar Robertson, the great basketball star, um, who has been claimed by the city quite well. Um, So if you don't have that kind of local claim or a family claim, and you were the previous generation of Negro Leagues players. Um, I guess he didn't have much of a chance to be remembered. Um, and then, you know, you said he was born in Annapolis. And I liked when you described in the beginning of the book and uh, about how there was black leagues and white. I mean, in terms of everybody playing baseball mm-hmm. on a semi-pro basis, a pro mm-hmm. basis, uh, everything. Just the, it, we, we could never imagine it today that every kid would run outside and just be playing baseball. There's games going on everywhere around town. Everybody's nights was filled. It was like a sea of baseball all the time yeah. in Indianapolis. Yeah, and I think Indianapolis is representative of pretty much every other city uh, in America at the time as well. You'd write it, black team, semi-pro, just purely amateur, professional, same for white teams. Black teams played against white teams um, all the time, which happened everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, you couldn't have that in today's sort of highly organized, uh, sort of helicopter-parented uh, world. But that was a very, you know, it wasn't the world of, uh, that existed more than 100 years ago. And baseball was the sport um, for blacks and whites both. There really wasn't anything close. And then we had John Pessa on who talked about the Yogi Bear and when Yogi Bear dropped out of school in eighth grade and then just started playing baseball all the time. But you mentioned how Oscar drops out at eighth grade and then at 15 goes to the Army and then is in the Philippines. And that's where he yeah. gets, and, and he really wasn't fighting wars or anything in 1915. He was just playing baseball. And that's began when he became this legend in the Philippines because baseball was popular. So you had all those leagues and he just played every day and he became the best baseball player in all of the Philippines. Yeah, baseball was part of um, American policy, uh, American essentially colonial policy, you know, to uh, Americanize the natives, so to speak. You introduce baseball because baseball is the most American thing there is. And so the Manila League was the um, highest professional league in the Philippines. And um, it was a four-team league, the Army, Navy, Marines, and then an all-Filipino native uh, team. And I think the Marines are the team that dropped out that allowed an opening that was filled by uh, Oscar's regiment, the 24th Infantry. And so he got his start playing professional baseball in Manila. And it's really interesting. He's you know he's 17 years old. Uh, and he had, there was a man also on his team named Wilbur Rogan, who, 
who goes on to get the nickname Bullet Joe Rogan. He's also in the Hall of Fame, became a great two-way player in the Negro League, sort of Babe Ruth-like or Shohei Otani-like. And so this team had two future Hall of Famers on it, playing against a bunch of, you know, guys who would be like low A or, or single A type players today. And they they did very, very well. You're right. And that's how he and Rogan both kind of began their legends there in the Philippines before they came stateside and continued. And he comes back to Indianapolis and starts playing for the Indianapolis. I love the name ABCs. What a name of a team. And they, they won the, <laughs> the Black World Series at the time. There really was no definition of what a World Series would be, but they, they were considered right. the best team. But then you go through his statistics from, and you made this comment, between 1919 and 1925, and this is when he was from like 21 to 28, he probably had the best seven years run of any baseball player in history in terms of, and, you, and at the same time you're comparing him to Cobb and Ruth in terms of their slugging percentages and the average is hitting 390, Cobb's hitting 382. He's hitting his slugging percentage even better than Ruth. I mean, and then defensively, he was by far superior. I mean, he would play center field and like cover the entire field and then running the bases, he was super fast. I mean, almost when you're listening to the book, considering it almost like Bo Jackson-like in terms of his size, his strength, his speed, <laughs> yeah. and everything like that. And, he, and by 1921... That's a great comparison. <laughs> by 1921, he was the, earning $400 a month, which is the highest-paid player, and he was just this, you know, just amazing force of nature in terms of being that, that period of time the greatest player. And in those years, people were watching him play, like white fans, black fans, everybody. He was drawing 10, 20,000 fans a game to watch uh, Oscar Charleston play. Yeah, and, and you're right about all that, Ira. And in case people are skeptical that of Negro League statistics, um, for a long time we didn't have very good Negro League statistics. Today we actually have pretty good stats uh, from the Negro Leagues. People have painstakingly gone back and searched through old newspaper files and microfiche and archives and found uh, box scores, right, and game accounts and reconstructed statistics pretty amazingly well. And, yeah, Oscar, just to give people an idea, he has about – we have – he has about half the number of plate appearances in the Negro Leagues that, that we have found that Willie Mays had, let's say, in the major leagues. And half the number of plate appearances of Mays, he had basically 200 home runs, 300 stolen bases, and hit 350. So if you just kind of double it to get a sense of maybe what he could have done in the majors, maybe a 400 homer, 600 stolen base guy, you know, with a batting average well into the 300s. I mean, no one's ever come close to that sort of set of elite skills in each of those categories. And one more thing, in case you think, well, but how would he have fared against Major League pitching? We actually do have stats, Oscar playing against Major League pitchers, because that happened in exhibition contests uh, all the time. And we have 158 plate appearances, not that many, but he hit, he had a higher batting average and a higher slugging percentage by far against Major League pitching than he did against Negro League pitching, including against like Lefty Grove and other kind of Hall of Fame type pitchers. So there's no reason to believe this man wouldn't have excelled. Uh, in the white majors as much as he did in the Negro Leagues. But, and that was what I learned in the book. I did, they, they played their Black League seasons, and, and it was a bunch of you know regular games and barnstorming games and everything. <laughs> so it's not like the seasons that we think right now. And at the end of the year, in, in October, they, the black and white teams would play against each other. And you would have these teams, and he'd be facing Lou Gehrig, you said Lefty Grove, Dizzy Jean, Walter Johnson. Mm -hmm. And these games would draw yep. tens of thousands. They'd be playing in Yankee Stadium and Oral Park. I mean, amazing the fact that you, you even mentioned that there were 250 games between 1901 and 1915 between blacks and white players and the blacks had won 128 out of 115 and these are against top major league teams and again they were more all-star teams where like one team would bring in other people right. and they would have different different teams but that's that i mean that was amazing to have that 
I don't think people realize that. I actually didn't either uh, before I started doing all this research. Just how often uh, black teams squared off against white teams. It happened all the time, starting in the uh, very early 20th century, if not even earlier. Uh, and so people could get a sense of how good um, black players were. It wasn't like it was some big secret that they were just as good as white players. And this, these exhibition contests actually played a role, I think, in pre- putting pressure on the end of Jim Crow and segregation. Because if, if, if blacks can excel in this sport clearly as well as whites can, what's to say they couldn't do that in every other sphere of life and how is this fair? And that, those sort of games and contests, in addition with all sorts of other factors, including the two world wars, you know, finally help us reach a tipping point. But every player who played in the Negro Leagues helped play a role in that way in showing just how, um, you know, there, there was no difference here essentially in what, in what um, people could do just because of their skin color. We're talking to Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player on Hyrule Sports 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. So, and then you mentioned these other, like in the season, they, have the, they had a normal season, but then after the season was over, they go to, many athletes would go to like Cuba to play. And, uh, and he played nine years mm-hmm. in Cuba and became a legend in Cuba in terms of being considered. So now he's the best baseball player ever in the Philippines. Now he's the best baseball player to ever play in Cuba on these great teams in terms of playing in Cuba. Just amazing. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you didn't make as much money then, right? <laughs> Obviously now if you make $10, $15, 20000000 million a year, you don't really need to go find extra work in the winter. But that wasn't the case. White and black players alike, but especially black players uh, in the teens and 20s and well into the 30s. Um, so, yeah, Oscar would go to Cuba every winter along with a number of other African-American players. And um, there they would often play on, uh, you know, integrated teams, uh, blacks and whites playing together. And he was, as you say, yes, he, he built a legend very quickly. He was able to clear these long fences uh, in many of the Cuban parks. He was able to hit home runs over them, which really impressed people. But more than that, how he could patrol center field, the huge center field, things like a Coors Field-like center field. Um, he could run things down that people couldn't believe. So he really had this reputation as, as a great defensive center fielder, a great home run hitter. And then, as you pointed out earlier, he was – very charming and charismatic. He made friends in high places. He taught himself Spanish in short order. In his personal scrapbook, he translates Cuban articles about himself into English on the margins. Really a remarkable man. And then we're down here in West Palm Beach, and you mentioned that a couple years he came down, there was actually a league, it was a two-team league between the Breakers and Royal Ponciensa, where they would come and play games two games a week in, uh, on Palm Beach. And you, had, and you had some of the best players playing in those games in the, in the winter also. Yeah, the Hotel League, uh, something for – well, there's much to do in, in uh, Palm Beach, I think, in 1916 uh, or 17 as there is today. And so uh, they had the idea to have um, a little league, two teams, and the idea was the players would um, work at the hotels uh, during the week but also would play on, on the team. And it was very – it was incredibly competitive. As I say in the book, imagine today a league that has – People like Trout and Bryce Harper and Christian Yelich and you know, Mike Giancarlo Stanton playing on it. Um, that kind of level of competition, and you can just go out and sort of watch it, you know, with a drink in your hand uh, in the evening uh, there in Palm Beach. It's really <laughs> remarkable to think that that was there, but it was. And then, so he played for Indianapolis. I mean, these they bounced around. I mean, these leagues, it was interesting. It was sort of like today, I mentioned some of the players would like some of the flexibility to be moving around and deciding where you want to play, but he played Indianapolis, right. St. Louis. 
And then he managed at Harrisburg. So that's the other side of him is that he was not just one of the the greatest player, but he also was one of the top managers. So he managed in Harrisburg, and then he went to in Philadelphia this team called Hilldale and managed uh, managed there. But then made his way back mm-hmm. to Pittsburgh. And I'm a big Pittsburgh uh, fan. I grew up outside Pittsburgh, but for the Homestead Grays, where people mm-hmm. understand. And then he had one of those in 19 years at 30 31. He had one of the best teams of all time when they beat Kansas City Monarchs for the the championship. Right, and um, yeah, so one, he starts as a player manager in 1924 in Harrisburg, and he, he manages more than not for the rest of his career, uh, up until he dies in 1954. And he's voted in one poll, the only poll I've ever seen, of ex-Negro League's players as the greatest manager in the Negro League's history, so add that to the greatest player. Uh, and yeah, he really... He, he does well as a manager, especially with the Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh, which he really helps form in 1932 with the money of a man named Gus Greenlee, who is a, a great gangster figure uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and he brings uh, um, Josh Gibson over from the Homestead Grays, and they recruit Cole Papa Bell and uh, Judd Wilson and a number of other future Hall of Fame players. And the Crawfords become a really famous team, and he's and Satchel Page is on that team. And Charleston really proves his managerial, you know, abilities, I think, with that team, especially with all the difficulties that having Paige on your team caused. He wasn't the easiest guy to, to manage. Um, and that's, yeah, that's one of the most legendary teams in Negro League's history. And then he goes on to manage the Philadelphia Stars and, and, um, and his career at the Indianapolis Clowns. Really remarkable. So he's a great player and a great manager both. Um, I don't know that anybody in, uh, else can, can have – you know, Babe Ruth didn't prove himself to be a great manager, and, and Cobb certainly didn't. I don't know if there's anybody else in that kind of inner tier who also had a great career as a as a manager. Yeah, I was just enthralled by your description description of the Crawfords and how they would just. I mean, they were like the first dream team where they would go. I mean, they, you talked about a game in Yankee Stadium where they had 35,000 people when Satchel Page pitched, and then this one matchup between Page and Bob Feller and all these other stories about how he managed yeah. an all-star team that beat Casey Stengel. It was just like one after another about these great stories about how this team was, was tremendous. And they played in the stadium, the Greenlee Stadium, which was a brand-new stadium at the time. So the Pirates were playing like Forbes Field, and but this yeah. Greenlee Stadium was nicer. It had lights. It had everything like that. So it was, uh, it was just they were – they were they were yeah. the dream team of the time. Yeah, pretty much true. I mean, there are obviously other great teams at the time too. The Monarchs, as you mentioned, the Homestead Grays remained really good, but Greenlee had an advantage over all of them. He had more money uh, during the Great Depression than anybody else uh, because he had a very successful street lottery uh, that he owned essentially in Pittsburgh. Um, so he had more money flowing into his coffers. He could afford to put together a dream team and build his own stadium and. Um, you know, the great thing about that stadium for these players was not only was it new, but it had its own dressing room. You could dress at the stadium. You couldn't do that at Forbes Field. You couldn't use the dressing room at Forbes Field because that was where the Pirates dressed and segregation uh, didn't allow it. So the players really appreciated that about Greenlee Field. And that speaks to sort of the difficulties they had. You know, this dream team would barnstorm everywhere, including through the South. It wasn't easy barnstorming through the South. It wasn't easy to find a place to eat. It wasn't easy to find a place to sleep. Certainly not a good place to sleep, uh, you know. And they they had to put up with so much, and they were so tough. And it built. You see this in Charleston, but in a number of other players, kind of a depth of character. Um, these were guys who went around whining about small things. Uh, they, they they had been through a lot, and yet, of course, there was no disabled list. You had to keep playing if you wanted to keep your job. I mean, the toughness of these of these men is really just so impressive. 
And then many times throughout the career, I mean, people are talking about Oscar Charleston breaking the color barrier. And it was really, though, but he played a role in it because in 1944, Branch Rickey got the approval to sign black players, and he was trying to scout the, the black mm-hmm. leagues. And then he supposedly, you write in the book, that he was perhaps the first scout, the first African-American scout in terms of finding it. He's discovered, well, not yeah. discovered, but he pushed Roy Campanella. And I love, if you could want to tell that story about how Roy Campanella mm-hmm. could have been before Jackie Robinson, but there was just confusion when he met with Branch Rickey. Yeah, so this is the third part of Oscar's legacy, besides being a great player and great manager, is also a pioneering scout. Um, there's a league called the United States League that Branch Rickey got involved in in 1945 as a new uh, black baseball league. And uh, Rickey got involved with it as a way to provide cover for his scouts to go to um, uh, black baseball games, because otherwise he stood out. He didn't want to be to learn about his plan to be the first to sign black players for the Dodgers. So he has the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers in the United States League and brings Oscar Charleston in to be his manager for that team, but really also to scout for the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And one of the people they asked for his opinion on is Roy Campanella. And because Campanella got started playing when he was like 15 years old, professional baseball. He's a huge kid, uh, very talented, obviously. And so Ricky just didn't believe that his given age was his real age. Surely he was actually like 30, 31, 32, not 24, whatever it was, the age they were looking at him. Uh, and so Charleston, though, because he had, uh, he had known Campanella for a long time, he knew Philadelphia baseball scene very well, was able to assure Ricky the scout that Campanella's stated age was his real age. And he pushed him to sign him, which, of course, the Dodgers did. And he scouted a number of other players as well. The story you're referring to, so Campanella uh, gets called into Ricky's office, um, uh, asked to come in. Uh, he's not yet signed with the Dodgers at all. He's just playing in the Negro Leagues. Uh, it's like two weeks after um, Ricky has met with Jackie Robinson and has signed him uh, secretly to a contract. Uh, so, or at least they've had they've talked about signing to a contract. He offers the same thing to Campanella, but Campanella thinks he's talking about the Brown Dodgers the whole time. He's like, he can't even get through his mind that Ricky might be talking about signing him to the, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so he says, hey, you know, get out of here. I don't need, I don't want to sign, I don't want to play for that team. I, I got a good thing going here in the Negro Leagues. And it wasn't until Jackie tells him the true state of affairs that they're playing cards at a hotel in New York City that Campanella realizes the enormity of his mistake, <laughs> that he could have potentially been the first to sign and in which case, Oscar would have maybe gotten a lot of historical credit and his name entered into the roles. Uh, but, yeah, Campanella always thought he could have been the first to actually reach the majors uh, had he understood exactly what Ricky was talking to him about that day. Wow. And then, you know, we, this is the anniversary of the Black Leagues coming up uh, this year. They've been doing some ceremony. And, you, and they talked about after integration mm-hmm. and the players, it really it was surprisingly the the, the, the the Black Leagues and the teams just started to fold. And the, um, by like 52, yeah. 53, they, it was finished in terms of how that ended. And you mentioned the book that there was at that point you know, in the 40s, there were more uh, African-Americans playing baseball than there were after integration because everybody was trying to get in the leagues and those things. So that was it's sad that in terms yeah. of that's where one aspect of that I'm sad in terms of that the African they didn't they didn't they should have probably brought the black leagues into the minor league system and that would have let the blacks keep playing yeah, yeah that would have been ideal uh, one of the very unintended consequences was as you say there were fewer African-Americans playing professional baseball probably in 1949 or 1950 than there were in 1946 or 45 prior to integration not what anybody had intended but the fans left the Negro Leagues so fast. Um, they, in 
instead of being a symbol of black self-help and we can do it ourselves, you know, and being proud of these institutions, almost overnight they become a symbol of, of Jim Crow, you know, exactly what they have been obviously intended uh, to fight against. So not, not something anybody I think really saw coming, but uh, in retrospect, there had been some ideas of bringing, say, the Negro National League into organized baseball as a, a high minor league or something like that. Um, it seemed, was talked about with other leagues. And maybe, maybe that would have been better. You, you could have had those leagues functioning much as historic, you know, HBUs do today, right? Historically black universities. Um, it was, yeah, these things never work out exactly as anybody planned, I guess. So we've been talking to Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player on Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. So you wrote this book a few months ago. It's been published. What's been the response? I mean, do you feel that from the baseball community, there's this now this more rediscovery of Oscar Charleston? Do you think more people are going to be talking about Oscar Charleston? So when we mention the name Oscar Charleston, people are like, oh, who is he? Like, is it ever going to be at that level? <laughs> I don't know if it'll ever be at that level. I'm, I'm hopeful. Joe Posnanski, who's um, one of the greatest baseball writers writing today, did his own top 100 players of all time on the Athletics website over the last several months. And he ranks Charleston fifth. He really gave Charleston his due. Uh, really, Bonds, Barry Bonds is the only guy he has above him that James didn't. Um, I think I have that correct. So that was something. Uh, I, his name is popping up a little bit more in you know, Google alerts and stuff for me. I, I see it mentioned more often, so maybe this will get him mentioned along with Page and Gibson as an exemplar of, of the greatest um, that the Negro Leagues had to offer. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We just, you know, the thing is we just need – it's not just Oscar, as I said before. We need biographies of so many other forgotten black players. There, there, there are two dozen a dozen to two dozen who are in the Hall of Fame who don't have a biography today. And so um, there's a lot more work to be done. I think it would all be to the good. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you writing this book. It's a phenomenal book. It's called The Life and Legend of Baseball's uh, Greatest Forgotten Player, Oscar Charleston. It's available on Amazon and Google. I mean, I'm sorry, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, and uh, I would definitely suggest reading the book. It was phenomenal. And I really appreciate you writing the book and coming on I Run Sports. Thanks for having me.